But a year later, we'll begin. We've been reading, of course, the book called The Source for James Michener. We're reading this book because it's, it's the second work that we had spoken about that has been impactful upon at least Americans, but certainly even worldly so. It's been translated in seven or eight languages, 35 million copies of print, as we mentioned. And somehow, the Jews have captured his attention. He provides us in this book with a great historical overview of Jewish history, beginning with a prehistory of the Jewish people, going up all the way till contemporary times. It's history in a narrative fashion. It's a wonderful job. We could evaluate his work and discuss it as we go along, either positively or negatively. I would evaluate it positively in that he conveys a message. You're not bored by any one section of the book whatsoever. It's certainly not academic, which could be perhaps boring to some, but does a very good job of communicating the essence of Jewish history. We're very pleased with his work, and the proof is that most people that read this book have positive feelings about it. The fact that there are 35 million copies in print 40 years later is a testimony to his great narrative skill. Now, we could have chosen actually any part of this book and discussed it. And there are two issues that we're concerned about. The first issue we're concerned about is, is his portrayal of that period of Jewish history accurate? Is it good? Is it true? Number one. And we're also concerned about our reaction to it. How are we going to analyze his portrayal if in fact it's true? If it's not true, we don't have to worry about it. But if he in fact portrays any particular period of Jewish history, and it's actually true, then if it strikes us, we want to react to it. Now, I chose to concentrate on a section that deals with paganism, Abu Dazara, idolatry, because I was stricken by his portrayal of it, specifically, not necessarily the service of the gods, of the pagan deities, not that, but rather the sexual connotations that were involved, number one, and the issue of child sacrifice, number two, along with the question that lurks in the back of my mind, is this endemic to the human personality? Are we really at heart pagans and therefore want us to fear what we might do given certain situations, certain circumstances? If so, then this is something that has to be studied by everybody to be aware of what lurks in the human heart. You have to be concerned about this. Because if paganism is an intrinsic part of the human personality, then we have to be fearful of what might take place given a certain set of circumstances. Yeah. So we assume that that is part of the human No, I'm not. No. So we assume because it's part of our seven No. I don't think it's necessarily intrinsic to the human personality. The Ten Commandments were given to a certain people, let's say one formulation might be, we didn't come to an answer to my question yet, but assuming that it's not, then we might say that Ten Commandments were given to in a certain historical context, and in that context, paganism was very much part of that society, and along comes Judaism and tries to root out paganism, and we might say that we've succeeded in our culture, in our uh, 
there's some senses you're not giving the Asara Tzidot such weight, in a sense. You're putting it within his Right, correct. So with regard to with regard to only that commandment actually. No, no, I would say that do not kill still applies to society today. Or do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not be jealous. These are all part of Correct, that's why I'm assuming that the tendency for paganism may be of the natural instinct, and that's why it's part of the I can buy that. I can see that. But I'm not sure. Okay. It's certainly not evident. Most of us here, some of us here, depends on how you define few of us here are actually pagans. Sorry? It depends on how you define pagans. We're going to. We're going to try to figure that out. And see whether or not it is part and parcel of human personality or not. At first thought, how many people here think that paganism is part of human personality? That you have to be wary of. Besides Eileen. In our broad definition of it, I think yes, definitely. Okay, so that's only four or five people out of the whole group. So most of us think that don't worry about your next door neighbor, he's probably not a pagan. Eileen's worried about her next door neighbor, he may be, be a pagan. Yeah. And I'm not saying no, I'm not challenging, I'm just drawing out the implications of your statement. That's a, if you would think that paganism is an endemic part of the human personality, so we'd be worried about the next person sitting next so to you. Why do we care if our neighbor is, is a pagan or not? Because a pagan means somebody who has no sense of the sanctity of human life, and at a stone's throw might walk in and blow up your house and take your belongings and I care about you. That's not very extreme. Drive-by shooting. Drive-by shooting. I'm not arguing the point. I'm not arguing the point. I'm just raising it as a point. Yeah? I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that definition. The Romans were pagans, the Greeks were pagans, yet they had a civilization. They didn't have to worry did about it. Did you ever see the movie Gladiator? Yeah. How civilized were the Romans? The Greeks weren't so good either. It's true, they were not. Nothing more civilized than, than, than modern men. That's Eileen's point. They were all pagans. So that might be the case. That's how you define paganism. Yeah, I would say pagan, we have to define it. And, and, and biblical teachings. It's probably on my leg is the pagan part of Salon and having no fear of heaven, no fear of God, and no concern for the Salem Elohim aspect of the human being. So a Nazi I would define as a pagan. Well, they would define themselves as pagans probably. Um, but would I call George Bush a pagan? Probably not. I would not call him a pagan. So you would, I mean? No, I wouldn't. Oh, of course. Okay, good. Good. So, <laughs> so we're okay. Yeah. No political statements here, please. So what I'm saying is that I, I do want to raise that as a question. I want to raise the question whether or not it is endemic. I mean, absolutely, it is endemic to your personality. I'm not sure yet. I'm still thinking it through. Do we have pagan tendencies? You know, again, you think we do. Yes. Right? Okay, I'm not disagreeing. Saying, but I think that's something that's to be explored. Most people do not think of themselves as potential pagans. Right? You'd agree with that statement. Most people are talking about it. In general, in the world. You go across America, there's 280 million Americans, you say to them, are you potentially a pagan? Most people would say no to that question. No, they say that God feels fear and Christian. And if they say that, then on some level, they're not a pagan. Then I say they are potentially becoming. Most people do not see themselves as potentially becoming or doing that which a pagan would do. Under what kind of circumstances? I, I think you're, you're mixing up, with all due respect, the definition of what a, what a pagan is. We're going to get to that. I agree. Saying you're right. A pagan is someone who believes, who doesn't believe in, in, in one God, one monotheistic God. That's one definition. You can be someone no, who believes... No, well, you can believe some, You can believe in, in a monotheistic in one God and at the same time be uh, uh, vicious or, and brutal. 
Oh, absolutely. No, we have to define paganism. I would probably define it in two different ways. The biblical pagan is not the modern day pagan. Hindus and Buddhists are probably viewed as pagans, but they're not the biblical pagan. Biblical pagan is somebody who's like Amalek. The biblical pagan is somebody that we'll look at by Thayyut Chet, which talks about sexual perversions, no respect for human life, no respect for the sanctity of the human persona. That's probably how we'll define paganism. I'm sorry. Just, just for a moment. Number one. And that is tied to Lo Elohim, not fearful of God either. Biblically, we tie those two together. Although, today, we would probably agree that you could find atheists who are moral. Although, when you challenge the atheists, you say to them, well, why are you moral? Why do you not kill that person over there? Because it's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? That person is no more than a monkey writ large. Sorry. Is no more than, than a monkey writ large. So evolution, the person was a monkey, the, pig, the atheist may say, and now he's a little bit more advanced. So the same way you stepped on an ant, a couple of classes ago, right? And the same way that you might kill a charging rhino at you, or a bear, or a monkey, or a gorilla, a human being. And even if it doesn't threaten you, you may kill the most. What gives that person somebody, something distinctive, that you're not going to step on that person like you would step on an ant? There's no God, remember. You don't believe in God. You're an atheist. It's a social contract. So that's only pragmatic morality, which means that if I can get away with it, I'm going to get away with it. So if I can get rid of that person, take his money, and nothing's going to stop me, why not do it? Right? So, that's what they, so the atheist may be pushing against the wall if he doesn't believe in a higher authority. He can still believe in the sanctity of the human spirit. Why? Based on what? I, mean, I don't want to talk about the church. I want to get to this issue over here. But I, I think the atheist is going to have a hard time Say the beauty of um, our more. The more what? Yeah, agnostic. Yeah. That'd be different. Agnostic because you're not really sure what you. You may believe in God. You just don't really know. Okay. So what I'm saying is, you say well, the human being has a, a an awareness of consciousness. Let's say that. Say that. But so what? You know, on a certain level, so does a dog have a conscious awareness. He's just a sophisticated man. Exactly. So one might say that. So it's difficult here to come to final definitions about it, but. Going back biblically, the biblical pagan, which we'll see, is somebody that does not respect human life or human frailty and also crosses the boundary of appropriate sexual behavior, as we'll see in a minute, a child sacrifice. All of that we point past of the biblical pagan. But even that, you can argue that they have a respect, just a different understanding of, of their value of your life. We talked about the last class. I mean, it's understanding to elaborate what you mean. Well, because if you're saying, I mean, Bev is portrayed in the book, they kill a child and then they have sex with a, 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 a prostitute. prostitute, right? The idea for that is that they're, they're, it's, a, it's a rebirth. So to a certain extent, they have an understanding of what mm-hmm. maybe a perver- what we regard now as a perverted, right. perverted understanding, but they have a certain understanding of the way nature works. There's life, there's rebirth, there's death. Exactly. Good. And that's okay. they're trying to recreate in, 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 in their own... So we wouldn't call them evil, just perverted. We have a different view of, 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 of evil. evil. You wouldn't call them evil. I'm agreeing with you. We wouldn't necessarily call them evil. Right, we wouldn't call them evil. We wouldn't necessarily call them perverted. Well, you did before. (laughs) You said that they had a perverted view. So, we would call them perverted. We regard now. Right, so we would say that they were perverted, but not evil. All that agreed. What I want to focus on over here is 
Going back to Eileen's point, is that endemic to the human personality that we have to always fight against? We all have the potential of becoming pagans. Or maybe it's not. That's what we're going to talk about. So I'm not coming to... I'm just raising that as a question. Okay, David? Are pagans by definition polytheistic or one has nothing to do with the other? Um, one would probably say yes to that because the Torah wants to intrinsically tie together the notion of competing moral systems. The pagan biblically had a pantheon. Baal, for example, was the head of the Canaanite pantheon. Right? Now, because of that, so, there are different competing moral systems. So your God of war might tell you to fight and kill. The God of peace might tell you to not fight and kill. So we want to establish a monolithic moral system. We don't, we don't want to come to a conclusion where a Nazi might say, for example, that my religion called paganism says you're allowed to kill Jews. So your religion says don't kill Jews. So your religion says kill... Um, what did you like for uh, the... Um, <laughs> the cockroaches, thank you, right. The cockroaches, you could kill cockroaches, but Nazis don't kill cockroaches. They're very good about that. Only Jews. So we want to get away from that. Torah does want to impose an objective moral system stemming from a monotheistic belief. Multiple deities may imply multiple moral systems and therefore one's equal to the other. Your God said this, my God said this, so they're the same. So We're not going to accept that. So isn't the modern equivalent Moral relativism. Absolutely. So aren't we paid? Isn't our society then? No, because we don't accept moral relativism. But, but our American society does seem to only up to a certain point. Hollywood society only up to a certain point. I mean, it's a question of what your specifics are. But we're not going to say that because you think it's okay to kill, we're going to let you kill. Because your religion says it's okay to kill. No, even America will impose its will even on religion. Most specifically about sexual perversion, there's a lot of you know, sexual activity out there today which is looked at and just said, look, you know, that's his lifestyle. He can, he can do what he wants. Or, uh, he or up to a point. That's up to a want. point. And it's, it's not that clear. But in the same way that, let's say, a, I think we said a uh, Seventh-day Adventist will not give his dying child a blood transfusion as a religious belief, right? We said that America will impose its will upon that religion and say we're going to save your child's life irrespective of your feelings. So, but, you, but that person said, but I believe in my morality, which is not to save this child's life. So we don't accept that. So we do impose, in broad terms, a moral absoluteness in certain areas of life. We don't accept child sacrifice. We don't accept even um, animals. Yeah, but that certain, but that Seventh-day Adventist would say, the same God that you and I believe in, since it's His will that that happens, that, that therefore that's what's supposed to happen and you shouldn't circumvent it. And what are we going to say to them? What do we say to them? The competing moral system. We're going to say too bad. We're going to say we're going to say that kids okay, lie. We don't have your interpretation of that issue. They're basing theirs on a monotheistic authority. They may be. They may be. Okay, but they have a wrong interpretation. So even in a monotheistic Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the Christians also burnt our by to save our souls. Absolutely. The name in the pagans. The name in the pagans. There's a lot of blurriness then. Of course. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with that. Yeah, certain things that are not that clear. But I, I might say that's a pagan value. To say, to say that I'm going to burn your body to save your soul might be a perversion, certainly. 
But I might say it's a pagan value. Yes, but for instance, so that's all. all these witnesses who won't give blood because they don't believe in blood. Won't give blood? Um, I have no problem with giving blood. My problem is taking a... Jehovah's Witness right. don't have anything to do with blood. Okay, so... Right? So they won't have a blood transfusion. They right, so they'll die. They'll die. Right. So that's not necessarily pagan. It, 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 it depends on how it. we define paganism. And if we define human life as the absolute... Anything less than that, when you, when you denigrate the human personality by saying it's okay to let somebody die, let's say, and let Hindus, when Hindu, don't interrupt, when Hindus will say something, for example, we'll let the cow be fed because it's a holy cow, and let a human being die in poverty, we say that might be pagan. If we define paganism as that which does not absolutize seven middle or human life. So, so that, that's the way we may define it that way. We may not come to a clear-cut definition either. We want to try to get a view of it. But what is interesting over here is that paganism is something that should be on the table to discuss. Because it may be either, as you said, part of the impersonality that we worry about. That's certainly a very significant statement. But it may, it may not be. Interestingly, I'm sorry, I had a... Superstition? Superstition. That's paganism. That, yeah, that, yes, 100% yes. Because superstition tries to invoke, invoke a power, no, beyond God, something should not happen. We'll come back to that later. In a very interesting book, which um, people, it's a very difficult book to read, but Emil Fackenheim is one of the um, foremost philosophers, Jewish philosophers in the world today. And he brings us back to a point David made last week. When David wanted to go into depths in the first class, you recall what David said? He wanted to go into depths of a particular issue. Right, and I copped out. You don't see the bigger picture? No, 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 I copped out. No, I copped out. No time. But he he takes an issue, issues of biblical philosophy, and elaborates it in the context of modern philosophy. Meaning, do, do biblical values hold up to the critique of modern philosophical thought. Philosophy is a study of wisdom. So let's say that philosophy provides you with the highest truths. Mm-hmm. As a general philosopher, we'll say that logic has brought me to the highest truths. Now I'm going to compare the highest truths in the last 500 years of human thinking and see how the Bible fares in this book. Right? It's called Encounters Between Judaism and Modern Philosophy. So the you want to pursue this. You want to take one particular issue, whatever it was, and say, what's the biblical philosophy about this particular issue, whatever it was. We don't talk to that. But he does that. And he'll talk about the notion of science and empiricism. Empiricism is when science says, I've proven it because I've proven it. That's empiricism. Right? So scientists do. Yeah. So they'll say, how does Judaism fare against the critique of modern science which only believes in empiricism? Number one. The foremost philosopher of morality, ethics, of the last 500 years, of course, is Immanuel Kant. So, he's going to raise the question, how about Akadai Kant and Kantianism? In other words, if the epitome of moral development is Immanuel Kant, how does that square with Abraham almost sacrificing his kid? Good. Then I'll talk about the philosophy of history. Hegel provides us with the, most, the foremost philosophy of history the world has ever known. Okay, so now, how does that work in terms of what Jews want to do with our view of history? We also have a philosophy of history. How does our philosophy of history, what we've been doing till this point, how does that square with Hegelian philosophy of history? 
Now finally, the point I'm telling you this is that he talks about idolatry as a modern possibility. Right? Now when I first had seen this chapter, that's absurd. Who thinks idolatry could be a modern possibility? I'm not pagan. Most of my friends are not pagan. Some. Oh, that's true. But most of them do not see themselves, even those who are pagan, don't always see themselves as pagan either. But he talks about it over here in, in 25 pages that, that idolatry is a modern possibility. And I'm trying to talk about existentialism, Sartre, etc. Okay, so this book does do what you want it to do. Namely, taking a biblical idea and philosophizing about it and then critiquing it against modern philosophical norms. Are you telling me I have to read another book? <laughs> I came here to learn this. I didn't want to read another book. Gracie? I was going to say when you're going to read book. It's a wonderful book. Paperback? Next time he's going to tell you on page 61, I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> right, he did that last week, right. Okay, let's go on. So now, we have the source in front of us. I am very concerned about paganism as a practical issue, but more so... I couldn't conceive of the issue of child sacrifice. Hard for me to conceive people bowing down to idols, because I'm a modern person. And certainly the sexual issues were of great interest to me. All the more so because Tanakh speaks a lot about idolatry. So now if we take Eileen's suggestion, which is that idolatry is a modern possibility, and Fackenheim's notion about this, we understand why we want to analyze this. But again, I could have taken any element of the source any period of Jewish history and elaborated, expanded, is it true? If it's true, what are the implications for us? What I ask you to do for the next session, or probably two sessions from now, is to read the section on the mystics of Safat, which I think is a very interesting section as well. But a lot of these sections raise intriguing questions in the, in the source. And it's a great takeoff point to discuss various elements of Jewish history, number one. Number two, also, how we react to them, how we see them as part of what we're all about parenthetically next week we won't be here we'll be in Israel right May 17th we're leaving so the 22nd which I think is next week we won't be here and the following Monday we won't be here either so that should be on your email I'll tell Ricky but only the third week we'll be back right 10 days in Israel okay good now let's also understand that what Mishnah describes over here is so intriguing for the main reason that the Jews themselves became pagans. Hard to understand. The Jews became pagans. The Jews themselves became pagans. Became pagans? You mean they were Jews and then they became pagans? I will say, yes, that Jews... They were monotheistic, non-idolatrous, and then they became pagans? Right. Let's, let me elaborate. Let me elaborate. Right. Yeah, let me elaborate. Which means that the Jews, of course, let's assume started with Abraham 4,000 years before the Common Era. I'm sorry, 2,000 before the Common Era, 4,000 years ago. Right? So let's assume Abraham was a monotheist. And he had his children who were monotheists. Children, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they go down into Egypt. Now we're about the year 1,500 before the Common Era, and they become enslaved in Egypt. We're not really quite sure what they were at that point. Monotheists, maybe somewhat paganized, or what we could call syncretism. Syncretism means elements of paganism, elements of Judaism. Syncretists, right. Okay. So now you have these syncretists, and they're in Egypt for 300 years, let's say. 400 years, let's say. They become more and more assimilated to the culture. Finally, there is redemption. 
Then they come to Har Sinai. God says, Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God, etc., etc., etc. Right? And let's assume that for that moment they were modest, they believed in God. Two seconds later. Then all of a sudden what happens is Cheta Edia. Now one has to analyze the 33rd, 34th chapter of the book of Exodus. What really happened over there? Did they really worship a golden calf after that experience at Har Sinai? Hard to believe. So what was that really all about? But we won't analyze that right now. That's going to be analyzed, but not right now. Let's go on and on and on. And we see moments where Jews achieve high levels of morality and are monotheistic. For example, Eliyahu Bahana Karamel. What happens over there? In the middle of the 9th century, the Jews have become syncretistic. All of a sudden, Eliyahu gathers them all this place called Mount Carmel, Har Karamel, and they see this great miracle, not to discuss right now, and they all say, God, Hashem is God. Hashem of Hashem are king. Hashem is God. They all were convinced at that moment. Because the next day they were. Whatever the case may be, at that moment they were. So they reached high points and low points in their religious journey, let's call it. So, for those reasons, we want to understand what was the Jewish involvement with paganism. That's what we want to understand. Mishnah gives us a great portrayal of what paganism is all about and gives us a real concrete sense as to why paganism succeeded. What does paganism give the human being that makes it so inviting for a pagan to be a pagan, but even more so for a Jew to be a pagan. Okay, so let's start with that. Number one is very tactile. I see my God. Is it only that? I don't think it's only that. It's a good beginning point. You could see your God. Having an invisible God somehow is uncomfortable for many people. That might have been true, let's say, a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. And Christianity did what? It took the idea of Hashem, God, they believe in our God, and they concretized them in a human being. They paganized God in a certain sense. Not really, they'll say, but Father, Son, Holy Ghost, whoever you work that out, but there's a certain element of paganization in Christianity as well. That's why we can't go to a church, right? I'm sorry? That's why we can't go to a church. It has a lot of paganism, pagan images, iconic icons that they worship. Yeah, there's a prohibition about going into a church. Correct. Okay, good. As opposed to a mosque. Right, exactly. Yeah, the rabbis have debated long and hard about that particular issue. Is, it, is Christianity paganism or not? Not for right now, but that's exactly the point. So now, my question would be again, what is so attractive, what is so inviting about Abu Dhabi? Foreign worship. It's an interesting biblical term, rabbinic term for it. Abu Dhabi is a rabbinic term, foreign worship. What's so great about it? So one is it makes God visible. What else? What else attracts? There's a lot of ritual which people can identify with. So they just, they don't okay, good. Rituals are very... Two things. They want to so it's participatory. Ritual is a very necessary part of human existence. Pomp and ceremony. We like ritual. We need ritual. To the extent where... Give me an example of a modern American ritual. Christmas. That's not a ritual, it's religious. An average thing. Hi, how are you? What's your, what's your name again? Oh. What I just do? I ritualize my feelings of closeness to him. I that tactilely. 
I felt again, and he, I communicated an emotion by feeling his hand and the warmth of his personality. All that little handshake. We do it every single day. That's a ritual. That's very common. We need rituals. Human beings need rituals. Paganism is very ritualistic. So good. What else? Yeah. It offers clear answers to why things happen. Good. Interesting point. Let me elaborate. Please do. Very many. The pagan deities were viewed by all as whimsical and capricious. What does that mean? You couldn't trust them. Why not? They turn on they you at any moment. They what? They'll turn on you at any moment. One minute. Can't trust uh, another, 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 another God to contradict them. One second. They're subservient to uh, someone. We're we'll going to get to that yet. Why were the, the pagan deities viewed as whimsical? Don't all scream out. Because you couldn't rely on them. You couldn't trust them. Why can I rely on them? I asked her, I didn't ask you. I'm sorry. One minute, they'll wait. You'll be in their favor, and the next minute, everything bad will happen to you. And this well, what happened? Did that, happen? did that really happen? So you would have that feeling. And you guys are all missing one point. Because you prayed for something, and then it didn't happen. Oh, why didn't it happen? Why did the God give it to me? Because he changed his mind. Because they're not God. They're real. They're not real. No, you could say, well, you could say some other God. They're not real. Right? So you and I know why they didn't, why it didn't happen. In other words, what did I do? I sacrificed my kid to get a good harvest, and guess what happened? Uh-huh. Came up empty. And the guy down the block, what did he do? He didn't sacrifice anything. What did he have? The great harvest. So the pagan deities, we know why it didn't work out that way, but they didn't. So therefore, they viewed the pagan deities as whimsical and capricious. Never to rely on. Can't trust them. So now, how do you get control over your environment? If you can't trust the gods, you never know what they're going to do. How do you get control over it? Magic or superstition? Magic is an attempt to invoke a power beyond the gods. The gods emerge from primeval chaos, and if I'm able to go above and beyond the gods to get what I want, then I have control of my future or my destiny. I'm going to live or die based on the food that I produce this coming year. And I can't trust the gods, because they just never know what they want. So what do I do? So I'm going to sacrifice to them, but I also want to do certain magical techniques. Don't use the word magic, because you're precious to get the word magic. But certain techniques, which is going to influence the powers that be, even the powers beyond the gods, to produce. Now, it's called, it's called uh, sympathetic magic, from the word sympathy or feeling for. Meaning that if I do something, it's going to impact upon the natural order. Now, I have at home a little doll of every single member of my shoe. <laughs> and anybody, anything I might have, guess what I do to that little doll? Yeah. I do. It works. Did you ever feel pain in the middle of the night? Anybody over here? All the time. I know. The ice can stay with them from you. That's the real. Okay. So now, that voodoo was viewed as really working. I have an image of you and I put a pin in it and it really works, we believe. I can invoke the natural order to cause you pain by virtue of my little pin. That's called superstition or magic or it's called I'm sorry? Don't bring that into the <laughs> yes. That's chapter 5 or 6, not right now. Okay? 
Keep it on the side. Wait, wait, not yet. So now, therefore, the pagan believe that by virtue of doing certain rites, all right, to ES, he would be able to impact upon a natural order to produce what he wants. So therefore, what's so important that a pagan needs? His harvest. He needs his harvest to be productive. He needs to eat food. If it's a famine, he dies. So therefore, he must do whatever he can in order to produce a good harvest and to have children. Why does he have to have many, many children? Because a lot, many kids... Workers. Workers, exactly. exactly. People die in childbirth. The more kids I have, the more guaranteed I am in my old age, which is 45 years old in those days. Now, at the beginning of the century, the human life was 47. 47 at the beginning of the century, 1920, 47. So imagine a thousand, two thousand years ago, the average lived 30, 35 years. By 30, he's old already. So he needs to take care of him at that period, so he needs many kids. Right? Okay, good. So now, fertility rights or sexual perversions, what we call perversions, but they were not perversions at all, were done in order to impact upon the deities to bless the harvest. Along comes Torah and says, don't do any of that. Rather, trust in the God. Right? Torah wants to create a religious revolution to change the psychology that a pagan had. We're concerned about pagan psychology. The pagan psychology is that I must control my future. I must do that which I have to do in order to make sure that I'm going to be blessed. To have a productive year. Children and harvest. So now, a human being would think, how do I magically create a situation where my harvest is going to be produced? If I plant seeds in a holy woman, what's the biblical term for a prostitute? Kedesha, a holy woman. If a man plants seeds in a holy woman, that's going, going to invoke the natural powers to plant its seeds in my field, which will produce a wonderful harvest. That was what went on in the source. Now sometimes, this, the, uh, sometimes the gods want other things. They want me to give what, which is most precious to me, namely, your firstborn child, so therefore child sacrifice. So very much part of pagan culture are these two elements. Yes? Yeah. It's the same thing today. Don't I don't want to go into that right now. You, you, you're right, but that's, that's what I want to come to at the end. Okay. Not right now. Gotcha. Right? Okay, now. So we understand the psychology of the pagan. Nowadays, we have more control over our environment. We understand that lightning and thunder is not something to be frightened of. They have to run and take my kid out of bed and go sacrifice because I hear thunder and lightning. Thunder and lightning. Imagine that. You, all of a sudden, there's thunder and lightning. What do you do? You grab your kid and say, sorry, kid. I've got to get rid of the thunder and lightning. I'm petrified of it. So we don't do that. God's angry, thunder and lightning. So we don't say that. Because we understand what thunder is all about, what lightning is all about. So, from that point of view, we've rooted out the pagan psychology in order to, with, with the advances of science. So we all understand it, right? So you would, you would say the person that believes that the lightning and thunder is God's wrath is a pagan. Perhaps, yeah. Yes, rather than science. Absolutely. Correct. Right. Okay, now. So, there is a psychology to the pagan which may or may not be part of our psychology. We didn't answer that question yet. But let me make a few points regarding what the notion of paganism was. Now, first of all, 
Why were Jews pagans? Take note that geographically, Israel is at the crossroads of three continents. Is it not? Right? So now, therefore, many traveled across its territory, not only in terms of invading armies, but this is your Israel, Jordan River, Mediterranean Sea, here's your coastline, right? Here is Syria up here, here is Saudi Arabia down here, here is I, that's uh, Iraq, or Bavel, and here is Iran, let's say, or Paras, all that is here, right? And here's Egypt down here, here's Israel down here is Egypt, right? So now, here's a little country called Israel, the Fertile Crescent. It connects to Asia Minor up here, it, create, it connects to Europe over here, and to Egypt over here. And throughout its history, it's been invaded repeatedly by all of these, by the Romans from Rome, by the Philistines from Cyprus, Philistines from Kastor, it came over here, by the Assyrians in 722 from over here, by the Babylonians over here, all have, in fact, invaded Judea at one point or another, bringing with them their cultural norms. This is to which the Jews came out of Egypt, came into this place called, at that time, Canaan, and there were 31 municipalities over here. The Jews never ended up rooting out paganism from their midst, as the first book of Shoftim tells us. So there's paganism all over the place. Not surprising why the Jews assimilated into paganism. Because of the geography of where it's located, because of its history of having been invaded on numerous, numerous occasions. All that's clear so far, right? Yes? Good. That, that, wouldn't that suggest that, in fact, paganism's lore is actually quite strong on the human spirit? I would say, first, the psychology of paganism is very attractive. Here, the geography of paganism meant it very, was very difficult for us to even so avoid. Couldn't avoid it. Correct. Third, I'd say, paganism was not viewed as a religion, but rather as a way culture, life. way of life. Good. So therefore, in the same way that a Jew might assimilate into the Greek-Roman culture, and therefore want to wrestle with the others, and if it meant paying some kind of respect to the deity Jupiter, before engaging in my, or Zeus, before engaging in my wrestling match, so I bow down. Right? You must do that to be part of that culture. How do you say that's not religion? I don't get that. Culture and religion were not distinct as they are in America today. Today, American culture is eating certain foods, playing sports. Why would you say then it's not religion? It was, it was merged into one. Why? You said it's not religion, it's culture. That's what you said. They merged together as one. They could be merged, but there's religion in it. Yes, yeah. I meant it emerged as one. So culture and religion were really one entity. So therefore, a Jew might say, I'm really being a cultural Canaanite, which may have involved, but not in this point of view, religious elements. To him, it was all culture. So if he sacrificed a, to, the, to a deity, it wasn't paganism to him. It was culture to him. In the same way that sports to us is culture, but sports to the Greek Greco-Roman personality was part of his religion. The Olympiad was from Mount Olympus, who dwells on Mount Olympus? Jupiter or Zeus, right. So that was part of his religion, but part of our, we view it as culture. Somebody goes to a ball game, we don't consider it to be religious. It's cultural.
Sports is a very powerful cultural element of American society. But it's not religious. But imagine if the Yankees, to win the World Series, it is, they had to sacrifice a goat. Well, the game. Well, the goat, right. So, well, Steinberg, right. So then, at a certain point, that fine line between religion and culture may be breached. It was 2,000 years ago. No longer today. It's two separate entities. So now, the Jew in that environment is geographically attacked by paganism, is culturally attacked by paganism, is psychologically attacked by, attacked by, and therefore attracted to paganism. So we're getting a good idea as to why the Jews had this very checkered history about paganism. Interestingly, that it took the destruction of the first temple in five years before the common era to root out paganism. Meaning, prior to 586, every single prophet did what? Ranted and raved and screamed and yelled about idolatry and paganism. Because the Jews were syncretists. And the Jews would say, we're not paganism, we really believe in God. But they were really closet pagans. They didn't realize it, they didn't admit it, but they were really pagans. So the prophet said, say, you're a pagan, so stop being a pagan. What's an element of paganism? Element of paganism. I sin, I transgress, I kill, I commit adultery, did all these things. And I bring a sacrifice, and what does that sacrifice automatically do? Erases all my sins. That's paganism. And the Jews did it. First chapter of Isaiah says, why are you bringing me your sacrifices? I said to them, your hands are full of blood of killing innocent people. So for Isaiah, they thought they're being Jewish, religious. They're bringing sacrifices. But really, it's a closet form of paganism. Yeah. There is some idea in the Tanakh, in the Hamash, where you bring a sacrifice to uh, atone. If you have the right intentions. And, but interestingly, we can have time now, but Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 7 says, God says, I never commanded you to bring sacrifices. I don't want your sacrifices. I want your pure heart, your intentions. I don't want your sacrifices. Because sacrifice is a cheap way of getting atonement. Bring an animal, do whatever you want, and you're fine. Because an, an animal which atones brings to bear all those forces that are going to give you forgiveness without you really doing anything to expiate your sin, to atone for your sin. So, but it, it can't work that. So the Navi rants and raves against all these forms of what's called closet paganism. Right? We're following this. Yet, after the Khurban, we had seen the list in the last class. There were three post-exilic prophets after the exile, namely Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and not one mentions anything about paganism. Yirmiyahu Yechazkel, who were the prophets right before the destruction, were all involved with their pagan activity. But once the destruction happened, Jews got the message, no more paganism. Now remember that paganism existed in the North American continents till what century? Paganism existed on the North American continent till to the 18th century. Well, no. Talk about Native Indians are They are pagan. I meant, I meant human sacrifice. Human sacrifice, the last recorded element, human sacrifice was the Aztecs or no, the Mexico, or Mexico, all that human sacrifice, 16th or 17th century. So, biblically, paganism is rooted out 2,500 years ago, 
but remained in this continent till the 17th, let's say, or 18th century. Yeah, nobody took the boat over, you know. The Give them the map. Oh, the Jewish boat, right, correct. Yeah, the Jewish boat, right. So to that extent, Christianity was good. It took the boat all over the place and did give that message. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's true. So here we have mentioned two things. We read the book, The Source. On the book, The Source, we had one chapter which dealt with paganism, which involved human sacrifice, child sacrifice, which involved sexual rights. We tried to explain why that was psychologically so attractive to them, number one. In terms of the Jewish element of this, geographically, culturally, why it was attractive to them, and as well psychologically. All the while, the Jews never viewed themselves as pagans. Because they still believed in Hashem. They believed in God. But they did things that we would view as pagan. Yet, with the Hotban destruction, 586, fourth coming era, paganism is rooted out of Judea. There's no longer any paganism in all of Judea post 586. Which is amazing. So what is there? Trouble agreement. Sorry? So, so what is there? What is there? What? Service of God. From the time the Jews came back from their exile, 586, not one of the post-exilic prophets speak about paganism. Among the Jewish people. Right. So only Jews. Okay. Only Jews at this point. Right? Now, last point is the biblical message was so strong regarding paganism And the Canaanites were so strong that the Jews always carried forth their message, despite all the paganisms, with them wherever they went. Meaning, even when they were exiled down here to Assyria or to Babylonia at that time there, despite all the influences of paganism and all that, they always carried their message of one God. So for the next 3,000 years, Jews had their message of one God. So powerful was that message to them. Tribute to Sinai, biblical heritage, whatever you want to tribute it to. But to this very day, you have millions of Jews that still abide by that core message. They may not be practicing whatsoever, but they believe in that core message of monotheism. Call it. So you still have that. So that message which started at Sinai, third century before the common era, that came all the way till today, is still there, despite the paganism. That's a result of the strong anti-polemic themes that we find in the Bible. Whether it's chapter 18 of Vayikra, or in multiple other areas, which we'll talk about next week, Bereshit Yutet and other places, the Bible comes out so strongly against paganism, that ultimately succeeds, earlier in the rest of the world, in rooting out paganism. And yet, we have to still come back to Eileen's point, the question, is it part of our personality that we have to be concerned still about paganism? We agree we don't have to be concerned about child sacrifice. We probably agree that we have to be involved and worry about sexual rights. In order to have a productive year in business, you don't go to a cult prostitute. Hopefully, <laughs> we don't know where to find it. Is that what? Kick, kick, great kick. Thank you. So we don't, we don't. So that's not it. But is there some other element of paganism that we have to be concerned about? It's not child sacrifice. It's not sexual rights. What is the other element that I'm concerned about? Today. Yeah. Man, 
Okay, well, magic is a bad term because none of us believe in magic. The occult people that go... The occult, maybe. I got better. No, okay, people, you're right. People that want to go find them the Kubal and they find them, want to find the quick fix. Forget about the Kabbalah. That's not what we're talking about right now. Same, same, same I don't, what, that's same a, it's a little bit more... It's just a Jewish twist on the same thing? Maybe. I'm not, coming on, I'm not going on tape and... Okay, I'm saying the people that, that are going into the superstition and that want to quit bits and want to, you know... In superstition, right. yes, I agree. But I'm not saying who's doing it or what they're doing. I'm not... I'm not either. Okay, good. But we all know. You're both kosher, so far. Thank you, Fortune tellers. Fortune tellers, good. Astrology. Does anybody here believe in astrology? Before I polemicize against that, I want to make sure nobody believes in it here. I had a class. Sorry. You just told everybody not to answer. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Well, I answered before I said. Uh, I had somebody last week in a class of mine. I was looking at the Rambam, my Maimonides, and he talks about it against him and against astrology. It's true. The Talmud is in favor of astrology in many areas. Many of the rabbis were astrologists. They believe that the stars control your destiny, which is a form of superstition or paganism. There was somebody in the class who was a 20th century person. You know, obviously, and he believes that, yes, astrology is true. How do you know it's not true? I was stunned. I don't think anybody in the modern world views, you know, believes astrology. Although, sorry? How many people start the conversation with what's your sign and every time? What is your sign, by the way? <laughs> you watch my first on Leo. Exactly. I thought you could yell at me because I knew. Are you doing it? Oh, good. Me too. But people told me before I went to figure it out. Like, you say your birthday and they just know. They know. That's amazing. But exactly right. That's amazing that people do have a kind of mixed feelings about this. Well, none of us are really going to believe in astrology. But, but and a lot of people do believe in it. Sorry, cultural. Okay, okay, good. So here's here's two people that want to believe in it. One says it's cultural, it's not really religion. Well, that's true. In those days, the paganism was cultural and not religious. And also, people personality. We want to explain my flaws, my personality, because I was born under that star. It's not my personal response. It's not my fault. He says it's not. So he's not an astrologer. Okay, so trying to find elements of paganism that still might be prevalent. I think it goes beyond astrology. I think it goes way. And I, you find it rooted, and this I'm influenced by Fakenheim's article, rooted in the human personality in terms of ego and quest for power. I was just going to ask you, if we figure out what aspect of paganism appeals to the human psyche, right. then we can understand what part of the world today exactly. right. is attracted to paganism. Right. Or us. Or the world us. us. What part of our right. personality in today, the modern world, will be attracted to? Or better... What makes it pagan based on, on that attraction? Okay, we're going to see that. When do you cross the line, is the question. From legitimate religion to illegitimate paganism. Now... My last question that I'm going to run would be something along the lines of could it happen where Judaism itself becomes, and Harvey hinted at this, but I didn't say it, hinted at this, that Judaism itself can be, can it be a source of paganism? Can it be misconstrued? Misconstrued as a source of paganism, right. That's a frightening question. No, no, no. It's not a misconstrued. It's being yeah. used. It's a question of whether it's being used. You two can argue about it, but i got to go. Thank you. We'll see you in two weeks.